Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Jesse Gander, and if you're not familiar with Jesse, Jesse is a recording engineer, mixer, producer, based out of Vancouver, Canada. He runs a studio called Rain City Recorders, and I first got to know about Jesse through a band called Baptists. There's this uh, hardcore band that I absolutely love, and they did an amazing live recording in Jesse's studio. And I would highly recommend you look it up. I, I think if you just look up Baptists, Rain City Recorders, you'll find a video of the band playing at Jesse's studio. And right away, I noticed it was like one of the most immaculate live recordings I've ever heard. And it just sounded incredible. So I definitely wanted to learn more about Jesse and his process. So that's why I brought him on the podcast today. And in this chat, we have a great conversation about how Jesse likes to use a hybrid mixing setup. So he has a giant Neve board, he's got lots of outboard gear, but he also does a lot of work in the box. And when people think about analog gear, there's often a lot of sonic benefits to it that people talk about, but then there's also the workflow side of things, which in many ways people think is often slower. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of people have been making the big shift to digital because they want to work faster. But in this conversation, you'll hear that Jesse actually talks about how he has created this hybrid workflow for him that actually allows him to work fast, even with an analog console and with all of the outboard gear. And a lot of it has to do with some creative busing moves that he likes to make during his mixing process. And when he gets into it in this interview, I think you're going to be really fascinated by the way he mixes drums in particular. He breaks it out into all sorts of crazy buses that give him a lot of control and ultimately allow him to preserve an analog sound but then shift gears and work in a digital environment. So he's got this really creative approach. I think you're going to find it very fascinating. So with that said, let's just jump right into this episode because I think you're going to really enjoy it and learn a lot from it. Jesse Gander, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Uh, it's going just great. Thanks. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you and what you do, can you give us a little bit of that background on who you are, what you do, and how you ultimately got into all the awesome stuff you're working on these days? Yeah, for sure. So I was, uh, I was kind of, I kind of came up through the in, in the nineteen nineties in the in the punk rock scene in Vancouver. Um, you know, promoting uh, all ages shows and doing live sound at all ages shows, and uh, you know, just kind of um, making cassette recordings of bands and stuff like that. Uh, I, I played in a punk rock band called called DBS um, that toured Canada and the states and Europe extens- extensively all through the nineteen nineties, and. Um, yeah, through that time, we just, you know, made tons of records and, um, you know, me being the singer in the band, I was the guy that had the microphone. So I just started being like, well, I should use these microphones to, you know, record our demos and that sort of thing. I didn't have to buy a, a drum kit or a guitar, that sort of thing. So I, uh, I spent my money on some 58s and uh, 57s and that kind of thing. And, you know, back in those days in 92, 93, computers were barely fast enough to record music yet. So I would record onto a cassette four track. And, um, you know, in those days, like access to, uh, to affordable recording was, was a lot more limited because the, the home studio recording revolution really hadn't began. So, um, so people just started calling on me, like, especially, you know, poorer bands or just like punk rock bands for the neighborhood or even like local hip hop guys and all kinds of stuff would start calling me and being like, Hey, I heard you can, you know, multi-track, like just, just having a cassette four track was a little bit of a feature in, in the, in that day and age. And, um, 
Yeah, so I just started, you know, spending all my weekends uh, as early as when I was in ninth grade, um, tenth grade. I would spend all my weekends recording bands and uh, onto cassette. And uh, many of those records ended up actually getting pressed onto LP and and CD. And you know, some of those recordings even sort of became uh, sort of cult classics around uh, around my neighborhood and in my scene and stuff like that. So, yeah, that was basically the the beginning of it all. And I just sort of learned by by watching over uh, watching over the shoulders of a guy named uh, Cecil English, um, who ran a studio in East Vancouver, uh, just up the street from where my studio is, which is uh, called Profile Studios. And, and he was famous for recording a lot of the uh, classic punk rock bands from the 70s and 80s in Vancouver, um, DOA and No Means No, SNFU, uh, Jello Biafra. Um, obviously, some of those bands are from Vancouver, but he recorded them here. And um, yeah, so, so I, I sort of, you know, he was a real DIY guy, a real like kind of... Uh, um, you know, came from kind of not, I don't know, well, I don't know, rakes to riches might be a stretch because I don't think he was ever that rich, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, really, really built his own, uh, his, his own studio and, and, and made a very nice place where, where, where some important records were made. So I watched over his shoulders a lot and he gave me a lot of advice and, uh, yeah, you know, this, it just sort of, uh, my hobby became a job as time went on. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a, you know, I think that's a pretty typical story of like, you know, a lot of musicians who like. They just feel like they they need to be more useful in their band or something like that, and they're like, "Oh, I'll start recording." And then you guys just like you learn it and you get obsessed with it, and you start following people, and you, you learn a lot from watching other people. So that's awesome that you had that experience. Yeah, exactly. Like I, you know, I, I already had a four channel mixer. I already had you know a four microphones because there was you know a couple of background singers in the band and stuff. So I'm like. I'm only a kick drum mic away from, you know, recording a drum kit pretty much. And, <laughs> and my brother, my older brother was a bass player and he really cared about his tone a lot. So he'd actually bring an AKG D112 to his gigs. So that way the, instead of taking a DI, they could, you know, mic up his bass amp, which was his preference. So um, he, he just kind of lent me or eventually sort of just gave me his, his AKG D112. And I was like, okay, I got, I got a 58, 257s and a D112. I'm, I'm tracking drums, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that just uh, and and you know now now I uh, now I own a you know a full blown large studio in East Vancouver. So <laughs> took, took thirty years, but I got there. <laughs> but it's also amazing how much you can record with just like a couple of fifty eights and a fifty seven or whatever. You know, it's uh, you don't need a lot to get going. You don't need anything to get going. I mean, you don't need. I mean, especially this day and age, like there's. There's multi-track recorders for for an iPad or a phone, you know. Like, well, now there's Logic Pro for the iPad, I guess. Um, you, you don't you don't need anything. Uh, but but that said, with that extra you know power comes extra complexity too. Like like there's not a lot that can go wrong with a four-track recording. I mean, you can get the levels wrong, you can mic something up wrong, but you're you know you're bound to the fidelity of the cassette that you're using which is only so great um whereas digital recording you know your results can be spectacular um but you can also completely ruin them and you know t- terrible digital recordings can be a- almost more offensive sometimes than terrible analog recordings it's sort of less forgiving in some ways too so so um i think also it's more intimidating as well like like pro tools and other programs even garageband you know has there's a, there's a learning curve to it and it requires uh, um, you sort of like get over that hump for you to be uh, feel comfortable and creative using it. I think, and that's that's also an important thing, just to feel like it's an extension of your uh, your hands instead of you're spending all your time, you know, diving down menus that kind of thing. For sure, yeah. There's definitely like a signal flow aspect to it, regardless of if you're on a four track or if you're in a DAW. But then, yeah, when you have these uh, you know DAWs that have so many different features and enhanced editing. 
capabilities and this and that, it's like you kind of have to, you really do have to spend a lot of time to really understand your DAW and the full power that you have with it. Um, but there's also a beauty in just having like the, that simple four track where it's just like, okay, we're going to focus on getting everything properly mic'd and proper levels and this and that. And like you learn a foundational uh, skill that you could apply to, to digital technology these days as well. Totally. And I think, I think that foundational skill in essence, you know, you should be taking to your digital recordings. Like, like, look, I, I edit like crazy. I use, um, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to make a great record if I need to use. You know, triggers or amp sims or any kind of digital technology, I'll, I'll use that. I don't, I don't, I don't care. Whatever, whatever, whatever we got to do to get over the line, I'm, I'm going to do it. But that said, when I'm, especially when I'm tracking a project, a little bit less so if I'm just the mixing engineer, you know, I try to get it right going in, and um, and that doesn't take much more than a 57, really. You know, a 57 on the mic pre on your interface, there's nothing stopping you from making a killer sound. You just, you know, have to respect that signal flow and and respect your levels and. And, and respect mic placement and, and, and you can't, you know, the fundamentals of that um, just can't be ignored. And uh, I mean, you could do things weird and there's no, there's no rights or wrongs with, uh, with, with what you can do. It's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not rocket surgery. It's, it's music and, and you can, you can, you can mess around however you want, but you know, if you're trying to make something that sounds really big and really clear and really, really beautiful sounding, if that's your goal, um, then yeah, following the same principles you'd follow to record to, a low-fi medium should be applied to a high-fi medium too. <laughs> you know, you're just going to get better fidelity at the back end. For sure, yeah. I mean, if you just if you just record with like a an iPad on its own, you're you're not you're going to be very limited. You know what I mean? So you have to you actually spend the time to get the proper positioning and this and that and like you know get the proper setup that, that a pro would use in order to get that pro sound. So yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, and you you alluded to the fact that um, you've definitely come a long way since that four track. You definitely now have a, a bigger studio, Rain City Recorders, where you've got a massive Neve console and a lot of outboard gear. So you've definitely expanded beyond those fifty sevens and fifty eights. Um, so mm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your studio. Yeah, so this Rain City is basically a studio. It's right in East Vancouver, at the bottom of uh, Commercial Drive, which is sort of. Um, you know, really busy hub of of uh, of nightlife and and you know restaurants and walking district. Um, so yeah, down sort of at the bottom of Commercial Drive is is an industrial zone, and and we are down there across the street from the chicken factory and beside the fish factory, uh, and the chicken nugget factory is just up the way. And um, <laughs> you know, it's basically a it, it would be a, a sort of a medium to large studio. It's um it was it was formerly a studio called Greenhouse Studio A. Um, that I took over the lease on um, eight years ago. And uh, it's been going strong. And it's based around a, a 48 channel uh, Neve uh, VR legend um, from 1989. It was a, a console that was owned by the CBC and bought brand new in 89 and uh, was decommissioned after years of, of use and uh, uh, re, um, recapped and, and, and refurbished by, by who is now my technician, a guy named Corey Dixon. Um, who services all the Neves and SSLs around Vancouver. And uh, yeah, like it's, um, it's really a studio that um, is the quality of, of, of any studio on earth. It's, um, it, it is not a, a compromised facility on any kind of a level facility uh, wise. Um, but it's also a studio that's very like catered towards artists and bands. Um, you know, it's a place that we really don't advertise. Um, we don't really like, you know, really compete or solicit ourselves within the, you know, mainstream studio market. We're more of a, a word of mouth studio. And, and I think the reason for that is, is because we sort of came from 
the underground and still operate mostly within that scene. Um, albeit now more on a international level, but, um, you know, it's a place where you can show up and, 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 and have nothing and, and record. It's, it's a place that's run by musicians. Um, it was built up over time. Um, it was never a place that, uh, you know, I, I, I never took out a massive loan and built a dream studio or n- nor was I, you know, made of money to begin with. It's the place that grew over time. Um, and the bands and the artists that paid me to record them over time, I, I reinvested all the money they made, literally all the money they made, um, into the equipment that is here for, 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 for their and my benefits. So, um, yeah. So like, for example, uh, a lot of people these days are, are jazzed on the records I've done for, uh, for Brutus from, from Belgium. Um, that's kind of one of the more popular bands I'm working with these days. And, you know, they, um, they, they show up on a plane from Belgium with, well, they brought their guitars cause they, you know, like their own guitars cause a lot of people do, but, um, but we have everything, you know, we have, we have, we have, we have walls of bass amps, Ludwig drum kits. Like, you know, we have every size of drum, every kind of amp, you know, um, like a whole entire cabinet filled with stomp boxes. Um, so yeah, that's a place where you can really come and, and we can make whatever kind of record you have in mind. And, you know, all, and all the staff here, I mean, I'm sort of the, the main engineer here. I, I work here about, I work basically work here five days a week or about, about 20 days a month. And we got, we got three other engineers that work here part-time and um, everybody here is very, very experienced and has been working at it a long time. I've been, I've been going at it since the 1990s. So, you know, 30 years or so. Um, and my partner, Matt Roach has been going at it for about 15 and uh, my, I have an assistant engineer, Emma, uh, Marisa McLeod, who's been working for 15 years and, yeah, you know, everyone here is basically kind of from the underground music scene and and um and is, you know, essentially trying to give people um a record that's completely as good as it can sound um but without breaking the bank. So, that's kind of that's kind of the, the the niche we fall into. Love that. Well, you talked about having uh, a Neve console at the center of it all. And, uh, you know, that, that that's an interesting topic, I think, when it comes to studios these days, because, you know, technology has moved so far into this digital world. And now so many people are just, you know, not buying analog consoles they are buying these digital controllers and, you know, just kind of working off their DAWs and that kind of th- stuff. So I'd love to talk about the hybrid studio setup and how that works for you. Um, and I guess first question I'd have for you with in regards to that is like, what made you decide to go with an analog console? instead of getting something that's like a DAW controller or something like that. Yeah, well, it's funny because for me, I've kind of, um, I've kind of uh, pivoted back and forth quite a few times that I'm, I, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm truly equally as comfortable with, with analog or digital, uh, including tape or digital recording. I'm, I'm, I, it, it's actually almost um, doesn't matter to my end results. I've, I, I feel at this point in time, my ears are really what take me where I, to the path that I, I, I follow. But um, for me, I mean, in the case of this particular Neve console, because I took over a lease on a studio, this console was already here and, and installed. Um, so I'd sold my previous console, which was a, an MCI 528B. Um, and I had a bit of money in the bank and I actually had a, a smaller studio in between my previous spot, which was called the Hive and, and this spot, Rain City. Um, and in that time I was actually using a C24 digital control surface, um, and an analog summing mixer. I was using a, a Burl, uh, B32 Vancouver, which is a great sounding summing mixer. Um, so, you know, for me, I, um, I didn't really have the necessarily the dream or the desire to own or, or maintain a large format console. Um, but this console was already here and, um, for what I paid for it, I would already have been about um, probably about a third of that way in there just to rewire a room of this size. Like this is a large studio; it's it's two thousand square feet. Um, 
to wire up a studio of this size would be probably more than $10,000 in, in, in cabling alone. So in the case of this particular studio that I took over, um, to remove this Neve and wire up a summing mixer would have been tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> um, so in the case of buying the, the mixer with the wiring and all the looming and cabling attached, um, it was actually just a little bit more economical. It was more than $10,000, but it was um, not so much more that it didn't make economic sense. Um, and since then, I, I've realized, like, I actually was nervous about it because of the kind of concerns surrounding maintenance, um, you know, and just sort of general upkeep of, of, of a machine of this size. It's a 48-channel board. Um, but that hasn't been a burden to me in the end. Um, I mean, Neve consoles are are just so well-made, um, this, this console was $900,000 brand new. Um, you know, I, I didn't even pay a 10th of that. Right. So, um, for me, it's the centerpiece of the entire studio. It's the patch bay that connects every single jack, every single piece of outboard equipment. Um, you know, it drives every headphone, it drives every monitor. It, it's, it's the center of everything. And, and what I've come to realize is that beyond the fact that it sounds excellent, it's the ergonomics. Like people come in here these days, budgets are, are tight. And, and people come in here for three days wanting to walk out with an EP, you know, or something like that. And having a large format console is just so easy to use. It's so fast. Like you just, you know, you can mic up a drum kit and get a level in, in 20 minutes. You know, every mic pre sounds good. Every fader is there in front of you for your hands. And, and speaking of which, you know, after 30 years of recording, like, you know, your hands get get sore like using a computer is hard on the hands it is it gives you carpal tunnel syndrome and stuff if you're not careful there's lots of ways around it we can use track pads and roller balls and stuff but like you know this thing i can sit here and just get to work right away and, and even if i mix digitally in the end um which i do a lot of the time um you've still you've still got you still got, you got a, a great front end you know you got 48 eqs 48 mic pre's 48 everything so it's, yeah it's, it's a blessing yeah, it kind of makes sense when you look at it from that uh, financial breakdown of like, you know, what's the what's the cost to get rid of this thing versus keeping it? I think mm -hmm. that definitely is more of an incentive to keep it. Um, but I would also imagine that, you know, there's a big workflow shift that comes into play when you like, you know, especially considering you said you, you were working with the C24, so you had a digital board. So you were probably used to working in that kind of environment. Now to have an analog system in front of you, you probably had to make some adjustments to your workflow in order to, uh, you know, continue to work at the speeds that you were doing. And it's interesting because you, you had also mentioned that you said working in analog is actually very fast for you, which yeah. I think is something that a lot of people think the complete opposite to. So I'd love to talk about that and, and what that transition was like for you. Totally. I mean, I'm, I'm still recording to Pro Tools. Um, so, you know, I'm, I mean, the speed of Pro Tools and like n no rewinding, you know, and, and obviously incredibly fast editing and, and everything like that is, um, is, is, I, I'm, I'm convinced that Pro Tools is far faster than, than tape in that regards. Um, but, you know, in the case of like a Neve, a Neve console is so clean and such a hi fi device that, you know, when I'm, when I'm, when you, when you come into the control room to hear your, your, your takes, I'm, I'm playing back analog. I'm, I'm streaming track for track right into the faders of the console. I can just grab it. Like if I'm sitting here with a drummer and, and we want to check out a drum fill and the bass is, uh, you know, clouding our, 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 our vision of that, I can just grab a quick fader that's labeled and turn it down. You know, I don't have to grab it with a mouse and, and turn it down and then turn it back up again. You're just, it's so, the tact, the, the tactileness of it is so, is so fast. I think the other thing that's so fast about it too, is that, you know, working in a digital system, like, like pro tools, 
you do have to watch that you don't, you know, overload your, your master fader, you know, your output mix bus. So you do kind of find that in the digital realm, you have to keep a, you have to keep an eye on levels a little bit more. Whereas with an analog console, like I think, I think my console clips at, at plus 30, um, you can't clip it. Like there's no, there's no distortion. So as I'm working throughout the day, I never have to think, oh, oh crap, you know, Pro Tools Master Fader is overloading a little bit. Uh, let's pull it back so I don't see the red light go off. I mean, you can chuck a limiter on it, I guess, but then there's latency, um, you know, with a look-ahead limiter. So I can just, you know, turn the kick drum up and down, turn the snare up and down, and you basically don't have to think about headroom. On, on cheaper consoles, you absolutely do have to think about headroom, but on an EVR, you do not. They're just... I've never heard this thing clip and I've never heard it make a noise. So it's just <laughs> so quiet and, and infinitely, infinitely expansive. So for me, it's just fast in that you, you kind of got to think about it less, honestly. And also, or even just like the thing when you're tracking, you're like, you know, you pull up your, you know, I pull up my kick drum mic, you know, oh, just a little bit honky, maybe it's a little bit basketball-y. You got a knob for it right there, just cut a little mids and you're good. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a yeah. very, it's a very, very fast way to work <laughs> for me. Um, that said, I travel around the world and I work in digital studios and, and I always feel like at first, like, like I made a record in Toronto a couple of years back where it was my first time using, um, an Apollo system, a, a UA Apollo system record and having the, you know, the separate app, application running in the background to drive all the head, the low latency headphones and stuff. At first I was like, Oh, that's so annoying that I got to like leave pro tools to just a headphone mix. Like, but then after a day or two, I'm like, well, it actually makes total sense because now we're, you know, we're driving things to the interface. It's totally low latency and, and it works. You just have to like, you know, adapt to it. I, I always find every time I work in a studio, it's just like a little bit annoying for the first, you know, day or so. And then, and then I get in the swing of things, I get comfortable. And then, and then the music starts to take over and the engineering starts to sort of disappear in the background, which I think is what I, what I want. For sure. You know? Yeah, no matter what, you're going to have to get used to being in a new new space and hearing things differently. And then you got new gear, you're learning all that stuff. It's like it's kind of like if you start like working, even if you're in the box and you start working with different plugins, all of a sudden your workflow completely changes. So you, you know you're, you're spending time learning those things as opposed to like working on the mix sometimes. Well, not just it, and 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 digital mixing is so is so powerful. Like I've I've changed my approach to mixing um, in the box or in a hybrid system many times over the years. Like. You know, I've gone, I've gone from kind of working in the, in the, you know, way that a lot of people talk about doing it these days, which is like using series of auxes as master buses or, or stems for globals. And I've also started getting away from that and just going straight into VCAs and simplifying my, my in the box mixing as well, stripping things back and just being like, let's, let's use less crap, you know, on our mixes. Let's, 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 let's actually become more like we're working on an analog console, not less, um, for, for, for clarity's sake and just for simplicity's sake and, 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 and purity of, of, of tone. So my philosophies on that, uh, have changed quite a bit over the years as well. Even, even, even recently. For sure. Now you, you'd mentioned like, you know, having the speed of having everything in front of you, all the knobs and all the EQs and all that stuff in front of you on the console. So are you mixing on the console as well? Is that like your general preferred approach? It depends. I go back and forth. I mostly mix um, using analog outboard gear that's being printed to uh, stems, essentially. So um, I do mix on this console. And for the first four or five years, I, I mix on here a lot, but um, almost exclusively. But over the last three or four years, I've, I've, I've gravitated more and more digital, um, but still trying to kind of uh, capture the tones uh, of, of analog as well, because I have quite a bit of analog outboard gear. So 
Um, so what I'm doing mostly these days is, is, is essentially like tracking everything on the console, using the console as a front end, um, you know, using CQ, stuff like that. Um, capturing some analog upward gear to the recording as well. Like I'm definitely, I, I don't compress a ton, um, to, to, to tape, to, to digital, um, with, with drums, for example, I almost compress nothing. Um, with vocals, I compress quite a lot. But I do, uh, but I do saturate a lot um, uh, before the recordings as well. I'm, I, you know, I use tape emulation. I use, um, I have Fatso's. I have Rupert Neve five four twos. I have a handsome audio Zulu. Um, I've got a few things like that that I use to to kind of round sounds out before they get become digital. But these days, because I'm working with um, an HDX system, Pro Tools HDX system. It gives you a couple of advantages that, that a Pro Tools native system doesn't. Um, one of which is it's able to compensate uh, and do delay compensation on the inputs of audio tracks in real time, which is something that on a native Pro Tools system, it does not do. Um, so what I'm talking about is like, I'll have, say I'll have, um, you know, my multi-track drum recording that will basically terminate to to usually five pairs of stereo um, outputs, like stereo analog outputs. One is called all drums, which is a general balance of my kit, cymbals, room mics, everything like that, kick snare, whatever. Then I got another one that I called decomp or drum drum compression, and that's a version of the drum kit that has way less cymbals, way less room mics, is more focused on the direct mics, and that is um, coming through another pair of outputs. Then I've got one that's called D distortion, which is essentially um, it's going to be a saturated version of of the drums, and then I have one that is called D verb, which is going to be um, it might be reverb or it might be room mics. It's general wetness or or depth. So it's sort of like four buses and then there's sort of a fifth bus, which is sometimes just um, might just be a, a print of kick and snare or, or toms or something like that. That one's sort of just sort of project dependent. But out of these four buses, I go through four different analog chains. Um, the first one, which I call this, it changes, you know, depending on the genre I'm mixing. But the first one I call uh, all drums, which is generally I'm going through um, some sort of tape emulation, like either an Animod or Rupert Neve 542s or a handsome audio Zulu driven by some mic preamps. Um, and that is sort of a picture of the whole kit, but it's been sort of analogized, uh, if that's a word. Um, the second the second spot, if it's fast music, is sort of an API bus. It's, it's an API 2500 plus into an API 5500 EQ. So that is a that is one that is very heavy on close mics. Very very it's, it's everything's pointy, everything's transient, enhanced. It's it's a you know the API bus compressor has got a slower attack, uh, faster release. Um, you know the API EQ is is punching out transients at the top end uh, and low end too with a bunch of bells, um, and then uh, and that's sort of like you know that arrives at a stem which is kind of the pointy transient heavy version of the drums. Then I have the one that's called D-Dist, which is the exact opposite of that. That's where the transients have been smudged and, and rubbed out. Um, that one I use either um, an Alicia character, um, or again, I might use an Animod or some sort of a tape saturator by doing something strong. Um, or I might use a, a very mu or just anything to kind of like smudge um, the sound. So that's essentially like to increase uh, RMS across my drum kit. And then D-Verb, which could be, it could be a reverb plugin. It could just be my room mics. It could be triggers of room samples. If, I, if I'm 
mixing a, a, a kit that doesn't have a, a good room uh, mic to it. Um, it could be a Bricasti. It, it could be a, a plugin um, that's going through some other stuff. Uh, sometimes I compress my reverbs. They go through that. And that arrives at these four analog or sorry, analog input stereo audio tracks that are on the other side of my mix template. And those are sitting there with their green lights lit in Pro Tools. For those that know what that is, that's sort of the input light in Pro Tools. And those are sitting there armed and ready at all points in time. Then the rest of the instruments in my mixes, the, the, the bass, the guitars, the vocals, the synthesizers, whatever, are all essentially being mixed. In, uh, and they're going to, um, I used to kind of go through a bunch of auxiliary inputs that were beside those drum audio tracks. But these days I've been get, sort of getting away from that process and going into just using VCAs and just kind of really going a lot rawer into the mix bus. And all these things terminate together. And again, because Pro Tools is able to compensate for the latency of the input of those tracks, it essentially makes it totally sample accurate in its delay compensation. And all those things blend together and come out into an analog loop, um, which is an SSL bus plus an SSL fusion um, and is being reconverted by Rupert Neve Designs Converters which is being captured again in a digital stream, which I am again monitoring analog because my speakers are analog. Um, so it's sort of a weird thing. And, and what it means is that when I get to the end of my mix, I'm actually arming, you know, five tracks. I'm armoring my master bus, my master mix that I'll be, you know, capturing and sending to the band or to the master engineer. And I'll be arming these four drum tracks. So they all are captured and that gets all that analog equipment fully like baked into my session. And at that point in time, I could turn off the multi-track drum mics. And the cool thing about that is that now I have these four um, drum mics. One is drum tracks. One is the normal drums. One is a transient heavy version of the drums. One is a transient subdued version of the drums. And one is reverb. Um, or, or it's a wetness. It's depth of drums, essentially. And by turning off all that multi-track drums, it saves a ton of CPU power which is not a problem at the studio, but it could be a problem in my home studio. In my home studio, it's based around a laptop. Um, and also, I don't have any analog outboard gear in my home studio. Just, just my SSL bus compressor and my Fusion, which I keep in a road rack. And I bring that to and from my home studio and, and, and Rain City. So what this means is that when my partners are working in here and I have, the, and I have a quote-unquote day off, um, I can, <laughs> it's not actually my day off because I always work, um, I can basically bring up these mixes Still have an analog compressor, which for me is is important to my to my sound and my workflow, and the and the SSL Fusion, which I just love, um, and I can and I can tweak these mixes, and I have those drum mixes captured, so all that analog equipment is essentially rendered into my session. I could turn off all the multi track drums and all their associated plugins, which saves a ton of CPU power. I could open it up, and if and if you know, and if I get a call from if I get a you know tweaks from the the client, like oh you know I wish our drums punched a little bit more. I just turn up the API bus a bit, you know, I turn up the transient heavy bus or, or maybe they'll say, oh, I just wish we had a little bit more symbols in the mix. I'll turn up the D dist bus or the drum distortion bus. But even that said, because it's all sample accurate and delay compensated, if I really needed a little bit more hi-hat in the breakdown, I can just pull down that one hi-hat track and put it beside my rendered stems and blend a bit of it in because it's completely sample accurate. So, so, you know, and it'll stay totally in phase. So, so essentially it means that once I'm done at Rain City, I'm done here. And, and it takes the burden off of me for doing mixed revisions because I love to work analog. I love the sound of my analog compressors and, and distorters. It's a, it's a part of my, my, my sound. 
Um, and it's sort of an advantage I, I have as well because I, I just think those compressors punch so hard um, and I just love the way they sound. Um, but it, it enables me to also have the freedom of working in the box where, you know, like my clients these days, they're not used to working analog. My, my clients are often younger than me. They're, they, they don't remember the days of like, well, close enough. Hope it, hope it comes out <laughs> fine in mastering. Now it's like, oh, can we have, you know, one dB more brightness on the snare drum? And, and, <laughs> and instead of like me being like, ah, oh, now I got to recall this whole thing. I'm just like, sure. Yeah. Bring the snare down or whatever. Or even just now I can even add a little plug into the drum bus. If the drums need to be a little bit brighter, I can put a little plug in EQ on and brighten them up a bit. Right. So, yeah. So, you know, so it just, it, it, it enables that burden for me and, and also the studio because it's a shared space where, you know, I, I get, I get, t I get 20 days a month and my partners get 10. Um, it, it means that on my, on those 10 days off, you know, if I need to make a mixed tweak for a client while I'm doing my laundry, it's not a problem. It's not a stress in my life. I'm not, not pulling an all nighter or anything like that, you know, or working 15 hours a day to, get everybody's tweaks in while I've got another band booked and, and so on. So, yeah, that's a very cool setup. It, it's definitely a, uh, I, I can imagine there's some people here that like, if they've never worked in analog or like trying to figure this, this chain out and what that all looks like. But I think that, you know, it's, it, once you do understand how the signal flow goes, I think it's a, actually a very smart way of working and it does really reduce the, the need for like recalls and you know or like mm. it helps helps minimize that time because obviously that's one of the big downsides to a lot of analog gear is like you know the recall time and putting everything totally. back to where it needs to be like you know obviously it's this allows you to move between studios and not have to worry about that analog gear traveling with you but it does have to reduce the you know putting the knobs back to where they got to be and this and that right and it prioritizes for me where analog makes the biggest difference like I find like for, for me personally speaking, instruments that carry like a lot of sustain or, or like a, like a, a high RMS, you'd say like things like bass guitar, vocals, and particularly distorted electric guitars and things like that. I find that like plug-in compressors, um, on those instruments sound great. Like I, I have, I have literally zero concerns or complaints about any of the current crop and even some older compressor plugins they all sound killer to me and for that matter if i have to work entirely in the box i'm comfortable with that too if you're using good if you're using the good quality plugins like talking like you know soft tube universal audio ones that really kind of modeled things nicely and got that attack right because that's the that's the rub to me it's like the crappier uh compressor plugins the attack sounds either smudgy or or it's or it's fast in the wrong way like it's fast in a way that it doesn't let the detail through but i don't know it's hard to describe but there's a there's a haze to the to the to the attack of of older compressor plugins and somehow along the line they've 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 figured that out i don't know what it is i don't know if it's oversampling or what it is it's it's not up for me to to, to know or, or care about i just use the stuff i'm not a software programmer but to me, like the transience of of drums and controlling them, either enhancing or reducing them, um, is 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 kind of the rub. Like the better and louder, especially in the context of working with with punk or metal or hardcore or rock, anything that's very drum based, or for that matter, probably EDM. Although I have no experience in that space, um, that to me is 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 what defines the overall um, tightness and dynamics and and punch. And even and even the the LUFS of of a mix by controlling that correctly. So for me, because drums are the most transient, heaviest heavy instrument in the mix, I put those analog chains to to work on on that particular instrument. 
Also, I would say that I'm quite comfortable mixing drums, and I find a lot of people that work with me um, come to me for my drum sounds. So that's something that I'm, I'm kind of known for. At least I think I am, or I hope I am, because I'm proud of them. Um, and, and generally, I find if there's anything that people have complaints about in my mixes, um, it'll be what people have complaints about with all mixes throughout history, which is vocal level. You know, getting that vocal exactly <laughs> the right level. Like in the old analog days, they do a print of the mix, vocal up a dB, vocal down a dB. And that's just because it's hard to get right. And it matters so much. Like the overall, the overall perception of the volume of the band and the clarity of the mix as a whole is based so much around the vocal. So for me, if, if there's anything I'm going to screw around with after, after mix day is done, it's probably vocals. Um, or sometimes for that matter, it could be bass as well. Like bass is another instrument where like, I feel like in the earlier days of mixing metal, like again, think Injustice for All or a record like that by Metallica, they just they just undermix the bass because overmixing the bass, it takes up so much RMS in the mix. It just requires so many volts to run that you end up robbing clarity of the kick drum and robbing clarity of the heaviness of the guitars and all this other crap. So they just kind of default to being kind of lame about it, which I think is why Injustice for All and records like that have no low end. It's because they're just trying to make it really clear, um, which they did a good job of doing. The record does sound amazing. Uh, in my opinion, but that said, the current crop of 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 anything from indie rock to folk, you know, digital recording and digital playback has such an immense amount of low end. If you want it to, like, you're not hampered by this headroom thing that that analog is always has to adhere to. Instead, you sort of have this infinite amount of headroom, and and getting that low end nice and big and as and as huge as you can make it, but not too huge. That's what separates you know, the pros from the amateurs with, with mixing. When you listen to a really great sounding modern record, the low end rocks, right? So, and, and the difference of that low end rocking, you know, me mastering has a lot to do with that too, but like getting that right to the, to the, to half a DB or, or, or a DB within an accuracy of where you want it is what you want. And for me, that's the car test. Like if I go into the car and I'm driving around where there's all this cabin noise and road noise and crap and, if I'm not feeling like the kick or the bass rock, well, then that means that I should probably go and look at that. And that's, again, something I could do in my home studio. And I can just be like, okay, let's work on the plugins that are working on the bass. Let's see if we can get the low end a little bit more enhanced and um, make that rock a little harder. So that way I'm not, you know, putting all this onus on the mastering engineer to fix that for me. For sure. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because like one of the things that I really admire about your mixes, and I know that this is like a very particular thing, but I've always really enjoyed the sound of your kick drums. Like mm. there you Thanks. have this way of you have this way of giving them so much weight and like impact, but without them being like too boomy or too clicky. And especially with like a lot of heavier stuff. And I find that like these days in heavier music, most people just like crank the shit out of AK, make it super clicky sounding and you know, call it a day. But your mixes always have this like big impact, but without it being like again, just too like like they're clear. They're not like just a woofy kind of sound. So I'm curious to know, like when it comes to getting a great kick drum sound, you know, what's your typical approach for something like that? Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a few things that I do um, for sure. Like, and, uh, and thank you for the compliment too. I uh, try very hard to make those good. Um, yeah. For me, what I do, I mean, it's um, um, tracking kick drum is, is a, uh, is a real, I could use anything. I switch around. I go any, I, I use D I use D one twelves. I use beta 52s. I, I use um, the new D 12 VR AKG. I like that mic too. And I use it outside mic too. And it could be anything. It could be, it could be a dynamic or a condenser, anything from a, at 47 to an ns10 speaker to you know it sort of depends I, I i always muck around but um yeah for me like mixing kick drums i i always have two two parallel chains i i, I work in parallel chains all the time uh, 
So even before the four parallel chains I talked about already in this in this podcast, there's parallels before the parallels. There's there's two <laughs> kick drum chains. One of them, they'll both carry the same EQ, which is probably some kind of a dip in the in the in anywhere from the low mids to the to the mid mids, like anywhere from 300 hertz to 700 hertz. Sometimes two dips, uh, both. So nothing too prominent there. Um, I don't tend to add a lot of a, a attack with uh, with EQ. I tend to more suppress mid range and let the you know the 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 high end be more prominent because of that. If you're looking for an attacky like heavy metal kick drum sound or something. Um, uh, but the main thing I do is, is, is do it in parallel where I find that all compressors kind of like rob the, the, the kick drum of the low end to some degree. Like I love DBX one sixties, for example, I love the attack they give. Um, I love distressors as well. I love the attack. They, they respect the low end better. I would say than a DBX, there's a more modern design with a better side chain filtering capabilities and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, generally what I do is is, is, is is there's two kick drum paths and and one I leave uncompressed. Just so that low end can can breathe and uh, and be as dynamic as it wants. And then I have another one that's much more compressed, like maybe even you know, six or seven dB of compression. If I'm using a distressor, be like a tack knob on on seven or or eight, like letting transients come through. Um sustain pretty fast, but not all the way fast, like maybe like a, a sustain on a compressor, release on a compressor rather at like three or or, or four, depending on the tempo of the song. Um, but I'll kind of let that let that one be. You know, the attack is slow enough that I feel like the low end has firmed up. Rather, rather the release is, is slow enough that the that the low end is kind of tightened up. But the attack is slow enough that the transients are still coming through and you're getting the, the punch. Um, and then those kind of blend together in one, um, and that becomes a, a singular kick drum path. Um, that ends up going to that all drum bus or to the, my drum compression buses and that kind of thing. But, uh, but the other thing I do a lot is, um, I side chain. If it's really heavy stuff with a lot of low end, I, I do use uh, side chains on the, uh, bass guitar as well that are being triggered from, from kick drum. Um, the main plugin I use for that a lot, just because it's so easy and, and effective is, um, a waves factory track spacer which I think is used a lot in, in probably in EDM and, and, and music that is, you know, very, uh, very kind of pumpy tempo driven stuff. But Waves Factory Track Spacer is basically like a compressor, but it's 16 compressors that are going up and down the frequency spectrum. And for me, it's only compressing the ranges that compete. So like Waves Factory Track Spacer has like a, a, a filter where it doesn't compress things above a certain frequency. For example, I don't want the mids of the bass being knocked down when the kick hits because the mids of the bass are where the musicality of the bass is. That's where the, the actual note of the bass is. That's the, the bass line. But the subs of the bass, like things like below 100 hertz or 110 hertz, that stuff is where the kick and the bass, I kind of like them to interact a little bit. So so I'll make it so track spacer is just is just turning down the low end of the of the bass guitar just a little bit every single time the kick drum hits. Um, so that's a way that I kind of just create space and I feel like I can have a little bit more low end. Um, the downside to it is that sometimes I perceive the low end of the bass guitar to be slightly more, slightly less stable. And, and that's why I, you know, you have to be cautious with it. And I'm only doing it a couple of dB, but that those few dB, it just kind of makes the, the low end of the kick and the bass interact and I just kind of like the way they move together. And, and it just creates a little pocket for the kick drum to have a bit more decay um, every time it hits. 
uh, without the and I still have the bass guitar nice and loud. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. I, that that makes sense. Like the the side chain. Um, and I, I'm curious to know, like you, you talked about recording and how you don't really care when it comes to the mic selection that you use on that. But as far as like the the drums themselves, like do you find that um, you f- tend to favor kicks of a certain size or anything like that? Does that have an impact on the quality of your recordings? Yeah, it does. And I, and I and I do have a preference. Like like I really try at, at this stage of my career to like to work with whatever is given to me because I feel like as you become more experienced. Um, you know, some of these details, um, yeah, I, I have, I have a preference and I could focus on them more, but I'm often like in my particular place where I'm at right now, I'm, I'm actually kind of not trying for more consistency with my recordings. I'm almost trying to go for less in a way. Like I don't want to be painted into a corner. Like there's certain, um, recording engineers, particularly in the, in the punk and hardcore sphere, um, that are really known for this particular sound. And although I respect those guys and I respect the fact that they have their own sound, which is a difficult thing to come up with, I actually don't want to be the, those guys. I, I don't envy the position they're in because I really like every recording to feel different. Like I sort of, I sort of lament the time, um, that punk and metal and hardcore records were all really radically different sounding. And sometimes I feel like things are slightly homogenized. So, so for me, like when I'm working with a kick drum, that is a little bit more abstract to me. You know, if I hate it, I'm going to slam on the brakes. But if, if I like it or if I think it's different or weird, I'll often just go for it because, because also these days with, with mixing, you can, you know, if I really hate it, I guess I could, I could trigger it or, you know, EQs are so powerful now. Like I have like a GML EQ on every single channel of Pro Tools, you know, like it's so, it's so powerful. But that said, I do have a preference. And, and my preference is, is definitely a 22-inch kick drum. Um, 24-inch kick drums, uh, you know, for me, I don't find they sound bigger on record. I, I feel like they sound more mid-rangey on record. And, and, and the reason why that is is because th- their, their fundamental is so subsonic that it's very difficult for the majority of speakers to accurately play that back. And as such, I think the listener's ear tends to go towards more the attack um, or, or, the, or, the, or the note of the drum versus the actual fatness of the drum. So in the case of getting a really fat kick drum sound on record, I actually find a 22 sounds fatter than a 24. Here at Rain City, we have, we have both Ludwig 22 and 24s, um, both maple, both uh, old, really good ones and in excellent shape. And I almost always use the 22 um, given the choice. Plus, I just like they're they're a little bit tighter. They they punch a little bit harder because they're tighter. Also, I think depending on the drummers, uh, some drummers have an easier time being accurate and fast uh, with a with a twenty two inch kick drum versus a twenty four inch kick drum. Um, so that said, I I do love our twenty four inch Ludwig. But when I go for that, it's not because I want a bigger kick drum sound. It's because I want a more character characterful. Uh, kick drum sound like the 24 always makes you think of Bonham's kick drum sound which is not like you know deep and huge and fat like I don't think of Bonham as like doom metal you know I, th- yeah. I think of Bonham <laughs> as as being more like more like a more funky in a way you know like more of a funky fast mid-rangey sound so if I'm actually trying to make something that sounds really huge I'll go 22 um, and that's my, that's my preference. That makes sense. Yeah. I think so many drummers get into this idea that like, oh, bigger is better. And is, in terms of low end and it's like, no, it's just, it just changes the way the air moves inside the drum. And so mm. sometimes like the bigger it is, the harder it is to get a really good sound out of it. 
You know, I, I remember um, I remember there's a, a local drum shop here called U Drum, and uh, they make custom custom kits. And for a while, they were uh, the drummer from Finger Eleven was one of their endorsers. And I remember having to I happened to go to the shop around the time that the Juno Awards are happening, and the drummer wanted this like I think it was like this like 42 inch kick or something like that. It was just something ridiculous yeah, yeah, just yeah, happened yeah, yeah, from yeah. the show, right? But I remember talking to the guy who was making this drum for him, and he's like, "Oh man, this thing is such a challenge to make sound good. Like, you know, like yeah. sure it looks cool, but like." There's like no tone to this thing. It's just you yeah. Know? You, you, you play it live. Nobody in the audience could hear it. Yet all of a sudden they all got to go home and change their pants, right? So it's yeah. like that's, <laughs> that's 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 what happens. Um, yeah. Uh, that said, with toms, however, I I do sometimes find that bigger is better. I I often do use our uh, our 14 and 18 inch uh, floor tom, uh, a rack tom, um, and they do sound absolutely huge. So I think it's because I think I think beyond about 22 inches, though, you're getting to some incredibly low sounds that. I mean, I have I have very full range monitors here with a subwoofer, and and even then, I'm like, can I hear it? <laughs> you know, it's pretty pretty low. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well, I also like that you you talked about the idea of like challenging yourself and kind of like getting away from being known for like a specific sound. And I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think I think that that is the mark of a good engineer, where like you can't just do one thing only, you know, like you said, you can, you can quickly adapt and be flexible. Um, and that kind of reminded me of something we were talking about earlier in the week, as we were talking about topics for this podcast, you had brought up the idea of working with artists in different genres who might even be chasing a sound of a certain genre or a certain era of music. Um, and you mentioned that when you have clients like that, you tend to look to a lot of references and you even sometimes look to the technology that they would have mm. used for the, for those references mm. too. Um, so I'm curious to dive a little bit deeper into that and kind of see what your approach is when it comes to those kind of artists that are chasing a specific sound. Totally. Yeah. And I, and I, and I love doing that as well. I actually like, I am, um, as much as I, I, I know I do have, uh, uh, my own approach my own sound at this time in my career. I really, you know, the history of recording and the history of just recorded music in general is something that I'm totally fascinated with. And, and I, I enjoy trying to recapture that sort of stuff. Like there's people that probably think of me as a guy that makes metal and hardcore records because, a lot of those, some of the bands I've worked with in that in that space have have gotten popular and um, and have done really well. But but I love I love soul and and R and B and and funk. I love old sixties American garage rock, um, British invasion shit. I, I love early seventies, um, you know, indie kind of stuff. Like you know, I I love I I really I like I love Bowie. I love Neil Young. Like I, I like a lot of different stuff. So for me, like when I. I like to work in different genres because I like to listen to different genres. And and when a band that is a different genre comes to me, I like to, I like to pivot and make it different. And and I'll think about, you know, like what kind of microphones are around. Like if I'm recording a band that wants to sound like say, you know, um, the Beatles, well then I'm going to be like, I'm not going to put the, um, I'm not going to put my, my, my Soyuz 013 FETs on the overheads, which I just bought two weeks ago and are like a new mic. You know, I'm, I'm going to use the Coles 4038s. I'm going to use that. I'm, I'm going to think, you know, they're going to use a Ludwig kick drum. Maybe it doesn't have a hole in it. You know, maybe, uh, I'm going to use a FET 47 on the kick because that's probably what the Beatles had to use. Um, you know, things like that, like just trying to kind of trying to just emulate a little bit, use the microphones that were around at that time. Cause even modern microphones that you could just go down to, you know, long and McQuaid or guitar center and buy right now, things like a 57 or a Coles 4038 or a U87 Neumann. These microphones have been around for decades. You know, there's, there's still the current ones. And I mean, not everybody has a vast mic locker to make these kinds of choices with. And mine is not as vast as other people's who have, uh, you know, 
bigger, more expensive studios than mine. But I, you know, but I have U87s, I have 414s, and I have a lot of those workhorse staples, Coles, and now you can buy those AEA mics again, which do great, like, you know, R84 ribbons, and they all sound killer. So I just try to like, I try to be a little bit historical in, in, in the microphone selection of the production as the bands would be too. Like, they're going to be like, Hey, let's play, you know, like, like let's play, a, a, you know, Jimi Hendrix played a Strat. If I want to do a part that sounds like Hendrix, maybe I'll try playing a Strat, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like these kinds of things, like the bands will have already respected that because that's what pop music is all about. It's all about popular culture. It's all about, um, you know, these sorts of minute styles that sort of paint us within, within these genres. And as a recording engineer or producer, you can kind of play that same game. Um, and you know, like things like if I'm mixing a record that sounds like a nineties alt rock record, you know, I'll, I'll mix it through a focus, right? Red three, you know, or, 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 or similar plugin, you know, there's, there's a, these days there's a plugin of, of everything. You don't have to own the actual analog upward gear. You can just use the plugins that have emulated that type of gear too. Or if you're doing something that's, you know, real, you know, something that's real 60s garagey or maybe Elvisy kind of sound or or maybe more like a like a soul kind of daptone type sound. You know, use your plugins that are more like tube emulated. Use, you know, use your, you know, Universal Audio tube tubey plugins or LA2As or that kind of thing. Like it's it's fun to try to get there and 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 actually getting all the way there to the point that people would be convinced that it sounds like a soul record from the seventies um, is extremely difficult to do. There's people that do it very well, but it's hard to do if you don't do just that all the time, but you can still kind of point into that direction and allude to it. We'll bring it up to date and, and being modern, you know, and, and there's a lot of bands that, 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 that do that super well. Hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of rock bands. I mean, almost all rock bands these days, like, you know, even the Foo Fighters or something like that, like a modern rock band. I don't know if that's modern anymore, but kind of is um, 1975, whatever it would be. Like they're alluding to sounds from 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 yesteryear, and uh, you know, as a mixing engineer, recording engineer, producer, you know, honoring that and and, and hearing it through your own lens and your own technology is going to bring it up to date and make it different too. So so that's part of the fun of it, and and I take a lot of like I take a lot of pride in kind of like having an, an idea about how the, some of those records were made and and sort of trying to respect that the processes as well, not just the microphones, but hey, let's you know, if you want to make a sound like Neil Young after the Gold Rush or something like. Maybe we should get together and start by jamming in the room together. You know, let 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 let, let, let some bleed happen. You know, because <laughs> that's probably how that was done. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that's really important for people to think about. Because yeah, if you're trying to chase a certain sound, like you can't just use all modern tools and modern processes to do it. Like there's the reason why it worked the way it did. Um, and and I th- I agree with you. I think that like some of those older sounds, they're so hard to get. You know, it's mm-hmm. funny because they, they were so simplistic in many ways. They had like, you know, very few tracks that they can work with and, you know, certain gear that was, you know, now our technology is just advanced. So, so extreme. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's kind of fun to sometimes strip it back and actually just accept those challenges of like, OK, let's, let's try minimal miking, Let's try minimal tracking and like, you know, see, see how to get those kind of sounds. And, uh, you know, I, I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning with like the four track and then, you know, turning that into a bit of a digital uh, approach now too, right? It's like you learn those basics. Totally. And so uh, I think one of the big things that makes a big difference of genre as well. And one of the easiest things to acquire in, in plug and land is, is the, getting the right reverbs, you know, like these days, like IK multimedia and universal audio and probably other, other companies, probably Altiverb has it built in. Um, you know, the, the, these impulse responses of the spaces of the old studios are incredible. Like, like IK has got the uh, sunset sound spaces and now the muscle shoal spaces, 
like where Aretha, Aretha Franklin and stuff recorded and, and the stones and everything did wild horses and all that. Like you can make the, you can get the chamber sounds and the, and the plate reverb sounds, those iconic studios. And, and I mean, that goes a long way to putting the, 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 the atmosphere in those spaces of the olden days. Um, and, but same thing if you were, you know, if you were producing like, say like a band that wanted to harken back to eighties thrash, like they might be a metal, a current day contemporary metal or hardcore band or thrash band, but like, you know, there's, there's things you could do. If even if you're using app simulators, you know, break out the DS one with the Mesa Boogie Mark four emulation or something, you know, like, like think like, what did, what did Metallica use when they did ride the lightning? You know, what kind of delays, what kind of reverbs? And, and again, you're not going to rip them off. No one's ever going to believe that you went all the way there unless you really commit yourself to that, but you can get pretty far. I mean, one, 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 some producers I really admire is uh, the guys at Adaptone studios in, in New York, you know, they do you know, Lee, Lee, Lee fields and, Sharon Jones and Charles Bradley and stuff like they went all the way where they're like, yeah, we're recording to analog eight track two tape, no microphones that are more <laughs> modern than the 1970s. You know, like they went all the way and, and achieved their goal of, of basically recreating the golden age of soul again. Yeah. Those recordings sound incredible. Yeah. They're, they're incredible. I mean, I don't have the, the resources or commitment to the, to the genre to go all the way with that. But that said, when I'm recording someone that, you know, operates in a little bit of a funk or soul space, well, I'll at least be like, "Hey, let's let's use the coals. Let's use a let's use a plate or chamber reverb on the vocals. You know, let's let's try to at least get you in the ballpark." And then and then the singer will be like, "Oh yeah, this guy, this woman, this whoever, this they, they get what they get what I'm going for. They, yeah. you, know, you relate on some level, and 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 that, and that makes everybody more comfortable around you." For sure. Yeah, it was, it's interesting because I, I was going to ask you if that had to do with your decision to go into like a hybrid setup, because if you, you know, if you are trying to chase some of these older sounds, you're probably going to end up using more analog gear. So um, I, I was wondering if that was part of your decision in like actually staying with the analog setup. Well, a little bit, but but because I kind of purchased the analog equipment along the way at the same time I was purchasing plugins and digital, they sort of, uh, their relationship's a bit symbiotic. The The main reason for my um, my analog setup is, is um, it's just because I just think it still sounds just a hair better. Um, you know, again, I, I don't want to like, I, I'm not, I'm not, I doesn't, it's not a competition. And, and I, and I, and I absolutely know there's many people that are more successful and, and, and more um, probably make better sounding records than I do that are fully in the box. And I, I get that. I know, you know, Michael Brower and Andrew Sheps and some guys that are far more successful and, and have better ears than me um, are all digital and, and they're getting where they want to go. But for me, only speaking of myself, um, I just still find running running a few uh, analog drum compressors. I can I can do that. Have my tone, have my recall, and just have. Um, I just I just feel like when I get into my car and I crank it up, I just feel like things punch a little bit harder. And that's and that's that's me. And I I, I challenge myself to 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 beat this. Like recently, I bought the um, soft tube bus compressor plugin, which I love. I also got a Universal Audio Spark subscription. I never had UAD stuff before because I just didn't want to invest in the card, especially because I already had uh, an HDX accelerator cards on my computer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, I, and, and the plugins do sound great. Um, and and then the Softube plugins sound amazing to me. Um, and I really tried to beat my my chain using all digital stuff. And I just haven't quite beat it yet. I, I feel like everything sounds the same um, when I AB it. Like if I AB say the universal audio API 2500 bus compressor, and my bus compressor, they sound the same to me or sound very similar to me when I AB them to one another. 
Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I did it to the point where I matched as close as I could. But still, for some reason, when I go in my car, I just feel like it slams a little harder on the analog one. And it's the same with my mix bus compression. Like, I haul around a rack just with an SSL bus compressor in it. And I use a Fusion, too, just for a little extra color. Um, and I don't actually want to haul that thing around. I actually want just to uh, insert my iLock or whatever and, and launch <laughs> Pro Tools. I don't actually want, I actually don't want to use analog equipment. I just feel that my mixes come together a little faster and sound a little better when I do. And there's, again, there's, I know, there's guys that are better than me that probably know lots about it that I don't know, but, uh, but I got to go with what I know at this point in time. And, and that's, and that's what I, that's what, that, that's what my ears tell me. So, so that's, that's why I'm still, that's why I'm hybrid. For sure. That said, love digital. I'm actually more excited about digital plugins than I am about analog equipment, but, but, but my key analog pieces I use. <laughs> so, of, co- of course. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like at the end of the day, you're really, it all comes down to your workflow and however you can work most efficiently to get the sound that you're after. If that means that you have to have some analog in your chain because it gets you a specific sound, then great. That's what it is, you know, but you're going to work faster doing that than trying to find a plugin that kind of does it and, you know, spend time messing around trying to get close to, close to it. When you, get one, when you have the one tool that you need, you'll just do it. And I've got nothing but respect for people that, uh, I mean, people like Michael Brower or Andrew Sheps, like, come on, these guys are, are the best mixing engineers in, in the world, uh, some of the most um, revered mixing engineers of our, of our generation. And, um, and, and their mixes obviously sound amazing. Um, but that said, that's also not what, it's not what I'm trying to, you know, that's them. I'm not, I'm not trying to be them either. <laughs> you know, I, I got sure. my own thing I do and I'm getting to it the way that I get to it. And I'm, 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 I'm doing my best to honor my clients. Um, but also just like, I, I got to go in the car, I got to turn it up and I got to feel like, you know, frig yes, this rules. And that's how I got to feel. So whatever way I yeah. got to feel that way. And I, and I, and I often find when I feel that way, that's when I get the most positive uh, comments back from my clients too. So so I, sure. I, I feel like we're aligned. Yeah. As far as far as working with those artists that are inspired by older like older acts and, and want a specific sound, I do find that there's always that balance of like being inspired by an older sound or older records versus the modern day sound. And and mm-hmm. I think that there's all there's always a little bit of that struggle of like creating that sound that sounds like their favorite record, but competes with today's music as well. So how do you normally go about approaching that balance? Yeah, how I approach that, that's something that I've really noticed. And and how I approach it is, um, like, if it's a band, I mean, I always mix to a mix reference. Like, I always, I have a folder filled with about 100 songs that I know the mixes of, I love the mixes of, and I use that great plugin that's called Metric AB. That's my favorite plugin in the world. Yeah, best plugin in the world. It lets you load up 16 tracks and, uh, and compare them with the volume compensated. And, uh, so often if it's a, if it's a band that I don't quite know the genre of, like, for example, like I mix a lot of metal, but there's so many like sub genres of metal. I don't always know like every sub genre. Like I'm not a big enough metal head that I know every single sub genre like intimately. So often I'll tell the band, like, let's say I'm mixing some band that's kind of sounds like a thrash band from the eighties. Like I kind of be like, I'm getting that you kind of have this old thing, but, but I'll be like, always say, can you give me a record that's a contemporary record that you like the sound of? Meaning, like, it's really hard for me to make it sound like Kill 'Em All. Like, there's like, who knows what they're doing then? Like, I really don't know. Um, so I'll say, like, what's a contemporary record you like the sound of that is in the style that you like? And then I'll listen to it, and I'll 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 often start by mixing in my style and and, and follow my own instincts, just so I don't kind of get thrown off early on or feel like weird or insecure early on. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll, I'll start by being like, I'll be in the mindset of like, Hey, I know what I'm doing. I know how to mix. 
Um, I'll, I'll go through, I'll get, I'll do the kick drum the way I do it. I'll do my snare. I'll do whatever. But then I'll get to, as I get farther in, just about the point where I start putting the vocal in, I, I always start with the instruments. Um, I'll say, okay, what do they listen to? And then I'll compare and I'll be like, oh, okay, these guitars are like really bright and this kind of exists amongst the genre or their vocals are way wetter than I expected. That's what they're into. Okay, cool. I'll get that. And then I'll start pushing in that direction a little bit. And then, and then I'll arrive somewhere. Hopefully that's kind of original and kind of neat, you know? So that, that, that's my approach. Um, again, just like trying to be myself and, and, and trust my own instincts, but also honor what they know. But, but, but if I find, if I chase something from the eighties or, or the sixties or the seventies all, all day long, I'll end up in a place where I go into my car and I'm like, ah, it doesn't rock as hard as I'm able to make it rock. And I, and I'm not feeling the power the way I, I, I want to feel the power. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess, you know, people people go to you because they know your sound, and so they know what you're capable of doing. And, yeah, if, you, if you're trying to lean a little bit more in one direction, you'll you'll be able to do that because you're a professional at it. You, you have those skills. Um, but, yeah, people are going to still come to you for, for your sound and, and uh, your, your influence and um, contribution to the record, I guess, you know, so— Makes, makes well, sense. More as I've gotten older, too, more and more people are more are become more established. Like more and more people come to me and say, "We don't know. We don't know what 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 we want, man. We want you to decide. Like we like the sound of your records." And I'll be like, oh, "Okay, I guess that's why you chose me to begin with, right?" So maybe you got to have a bit of belief in your own uh, uh, self as well at some point in time. But but I don't know if it's just the imposter syndrome kicking in or what it is. But I always mix to a reference, and I think it's good to it, you need that reality check. It's important to have a reality check. For sure. Yeah. And imposter syndrome is something that affects all of us. And uh, I, I think that I like your approach of like, even if they want a certain sound, you still mix it your way first to get that confidence of getting that sound. And, and you know, that I think that's probably the best way to get that kind of hybrid of the modern versus the older sound, because, you know, you're, you're taking, you know, your, your current approach to things and then kind of then reverse engineering some of the stuff that made those records sound the way they did and, um, you know, give it that extra character. Very cool. And again, a lot of that comes back to um, like reverb is a big one. If it makes it over in the eighties, you should probably be using like AMS type reverbs or lexicons or nonlinear reverbs, or maybe hall reverbs, depending on whatever style of music or whatever tempo of music you're doing. If you're doing 60s stuff, you should probably be using plates and springs and chambers. And, you know, like, like again, try to understand what made those records great back then. Um, if you're doing something modern, you might want to use almost no reverbs and just use delay. You know, mm -hmm. like a lot of modern rock records don't have a lot of reverb. It's actually often more delay. So that, that's, that's all things that, you know, to, to make things feel more forward, more in your face, which is kind of the, what's been on Vogue for quite a long, quite a long time now, almost like two decades, I'd say we're kind of looking for immediacy and, and, and in your faceness. Whereas in the seventies, they might be looking more for depth. Um, so, you know, that, again, that's that's a trend. That's that's pop music. That's popular culture. Yeah, for sure. Right on, man. Dude, this has been a, a great conversation. I've had a lot of fun learning about your process and um, you know how you incorporate the analog stuff with the digital and and just your your overall approach to to making records. So, uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. If people want to follow you or learn more about you and maybe even potentially work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, I'm on uh, I'm on social media with all my my real name. I don't use any aliases, so it's you know it's J Jesse Gander at uh, on Instagram, Facebook, um, uh, jessegander.com is my, uh, my, uh, website. Um, raincityrecorders.com is the studio. Um, both me and the studio are, are kind of one and the same, but we have separate websites. Other people work at the studio too. Um, yeah. So yeah, all the general, uh, you know, and I, yeah, I keep all my accounts open. Um, 
I generally accept all my friend requests and follow back too. So I like, uh, I like keeping in touch with people. Um, always happy to take people's DMS and talk to them. I'm, I'm not a heavy user of social media, but I'm, but I'm a heavy lurker of social media. So, uh, yeah, so I'm always happy to connect with people and yeah. And just, you know, I'm, um, yeah, love to, uh, love, lo- love to meet other engineers and, and talk. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I had a blast. So that was my interview with Jesse Gander, and I really enjoyed learning about how he runs his studio in that hybrid setup with the Neve console, yet does so much still in the box. And I thought that it was really impressive the way he thinks about how to commit the audio with his outboard gear and how he uses his busing setup and all that kind of stuff. I think all of that is such an important decision to make if you're going to switch to a hybrid setup because, yeah, you don't want to be spending all of your time doing recalls and repatching things. All that takes a lot of time. It's very inefficient. And with a studio setup like he has where you've got multiple engineers working on different projects, the last thing you want to do is book up an entire room just to make some very small changes to a mix. Right. There are definitely bigger projects that actually require that space and require all of the all of the different gear. And so you don't want to have to book up a room just for a small mix move that should be able to be made outside of that studio space. So the way that Jesse has set up all of that routing, I think it's a very smart way so that he gets the best of both worlds. He still preserves that analog sound, has all of that, but he's built himself up so that he has that flexibility to still make adjustments, and to really actually make revisions from anywhere, which is a pretty nice luxury to have. So whether you are currently working in an analog system or maybe you're considering getting some outboard gear, I hope that you were able to pick up some great tips along the way here to make your workflow much more efficient and to make the process of working in a hybrid environment that much easier for you. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Mike, hey, look, all this sounds cool, but I still don't even know how to use the gear that I have right now. So if that is you, then I definitely want to point you to MasterYourMix.com. That is a website that I have where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios, teaching you everything you need to know about recording, editing, and mixing your music so that it sounds pro. And on the website, there are a ton of great resources for you to check out, one of which that I'd recommend you check out is my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, I break down the process of mixing step-by-step so that you know exactly what to listen for, what tools to use, what settings to check out, all that kind of stuff so you can ultimately eliminate the guesswork from your process, and make mixes that sound just as good as you've always heard them in your head. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Later. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.